Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey, Smart Mamas, it's Crystal. I am super excited to be introducing our special guest for today, Tanya Bales. And for those of you that don't know, Tanya was married to John Meehan, Dirty John. Yes, Dirty John from the True Crime Podcast, produced by Wondery and the LA Times, hosted by Chris Golford, that spun off onto a Bravo miniseries and is currently streaming on Netflix. Yes, that Dirty John. John Meehan was a complete sociopath and a CRNA to boot and was married to Tanya, also a CRNA, who is a integral part of our CRNA mom community. And I reached out and asked her if she would chat with us today and she agreed. And here we are, pinch me moment, super excited to have her share her story with us and find out how she got through such an abusive relationship and came out the other side a survivor and a strong fierce mama and how she raised two amazing beautiful girls that are functional productive members of society with all those factors against her if she can do it we can do it and she's going to tell us how so I'm super excited to hear Tanya's story so hello guys and welcome back to Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. Um, today we are super excited to talk to Tanya Bales. Hi Tanya. Hi. How are you guys? I Hi. wanted to say good morning earlier too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're Tanya. What time zone are you in? I'm in Eastern time zone. I live oh, me too. Okay, perfect. You're outside of Atlanta. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I'm Eastern also, and these two girls are Central, so it's always confusing to us. Sometimes we're like bridging the gap between like morning and afternoon or afternoon and evening so um yeah there's that but i'm ellen you guys coming back to you and we are super super excited i have been looking forward to this for so long and i can't believe the day is here and lacy looks amazing today you guys can't see her but she's like prepared yes she's like interviewing I never look good for- you look good you look really she's good. like good morning america ready yes <laughs> So, so on on a really tragic note, we're going to take it all the way there. Um, this last week, we had a CRNA who was a mom who was killed in a domestic violence incident. And so I think that this topic in this interview with Tanya is going to be really poignant to our CRNA family and to just speak to the issue of domestic violence in our country. So on that kind of tragic note... Let's get started. So I know Crystal had a really good question to lead us off, kind of taking us back to the beginning here. Tanya, it looked like that was news to you um, about the CRNA that was murdered tragically. Yes. 
You didn't I don't know anything about, about that. that. She had a boyfriend and she had two kids, I believe, and they were in a abusive situation for a long time and and he stabbed her over 20 times and killed her within a week yeah, and ago. he was it wasn't like she was dating some gangster and you know that's what i think happens a lot of times people say oh well he wasn't a gangster or wasn't this and he was educated and he was high earning and he was you know like a accomplished quote-unquote person like we expect those people not to do these things but it happens to anybody and so that's why i think that people get so taken aback because they're like well how could this happen to somebody so you know like well established it's not like you're in the ghetto where they have drive-bys every day it's it's like real people who you don't expect this from it's where you know socioeconomic class doesn't matter so yeah it, it it spans all age groups all socioeconomic groups and i will say that that's part of the reason that i don't think I was taken seriously um, uh, for part of my story was that, you know, the police are showing up in this very, you know, uh, high-end neighborhood and they're getting divorced and she has some very serious accusations, uh, you know, towards my husband. And I don't, I, this wasn't the typical story. And I just think that they thought I was just trying to get back at him for an affair. And so part of the reason I wasn't taken seriously, but you know, I will say that if I, I learn a lot of my quotes from um, Laura Richards, Laura Richards is a, a phenomenal uh, criminal behavioral analyst. And if a man threatens with your life, you have a 50% chance of being killed by them. Wow. So, so when you were married, was it all, you know, sunshine and roses up until you found out he was diverting or were there red flags that led up to it? Well, you know, in hindsight, there's always red flags, <laughs> um, but I guess a true red flag is something that alerts you at that time. And, and I will, I, I have to admit that there were some, and I usually address those with John, anything that, you know, was triggering me to, to ask a question. The problem with John is that John is a, at least a sociopath and probably a psychopath, and his answers were quick. And they were very believable to someone who was kind of innocent, a little bit sheltered, uh, like I was. I didn't have much experience on the streets of any kind. Yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, I was raised to be a good person and an honest person. And it wasn't fathomable to me that someone would lie to you about these any, any of these types of things. So I took him at face value when he had a plausible answer. And can yeah. you just kind of talk to the listeners quickly, you know, bring us up to speed if you can on the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath for those people who kind of use those words interchangeably? Yeah, well, they are used interchangeably. And uh, full disclosure, I'm not an expert <laughs> mm -hmm. um, at, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I have uh, no training in any of that. But one of the main differences is that, that I understand is that a psychopath is born a psychopath and a sociopath is basically like trained. Like nature versus nurture for... Yeah. And okay. I think it, John had both of those. I mean... So yeah. on, that, on that thread of born versus kind of created or trained, what role do you think anesthesia had in his in the creation of the, his evil. You know, I know on my very first day of anesthesia school, and I think a lot of people have this experience, 
when we show up to our classroom, they have us watch a video on addiction and diversion and say one in four of you are going to have an issue at some point in your career. And I think it's something that's being highlighted now in the anesthesia community and for new anesthesia students. But what role do you think our career had in, in him? I think I understand your question. Uh, I will address that I didn't have any training in my school. I did not get that lecture that you just speak of. I don't know if John did or not. Um, I don't know. I've been asked if I thought that John uh, went to law school, I mean, went to um, anesthesia school um, to divert. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not sure. He had a drug history in the past that I was unaware of. Um, I can't get my mind around somebody doing all that. We all know right. how hard it is to <laughs> yeah. become a nurse, <laughs> to get into anesthesia school, and to do all that, to divert. That, uh, If that's true, that just speaks to how... Um, how serious and how, uh, you know, strong uh, addiction can be. Um, if he didn't go there to divert, he certainly um, uh, had a history in the past that nobody knew about. And if he was prone to drug addiction, either through his uh, genetics or, or, or whatever, um, you know, it certainly was no place for him necessarily to be having access. Did he drink or do anything excessively when you were married? No, John, I would have described John as a very clean cut, hardworking, athletic, good eating, non-smoking wow. um, person. And um, I, I, I was pretty square myself. I hardly drank at all until after we got divorced and then I needed to be a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> at least I was encouraged to. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were pretty square couple, and he didn't drink in front of me. No marijuana, no prescription drugs. I wasn't aware of anything like that. Certainly, that was not the culture of our marriage. When you were at the you know, peak of your marriage before everything kind of unraveled, was he verbally abusive to you at no, all? No, and I don't even actually think I answered your, your first question. Was our marriage all roses? No, I don't think anybody's there, <laughs> but I thought our marriage was normal. And I thought I had a good marriage. I thought that, you know, we both were very busy professionals. And, you know, basically the first 10, 12 years um, of our marriage, one or the other or both of us were in school. So that kept us apart a fair bit. And that, you know, has its own challenges. But I thought we were managing all of that very well. And then, of course, when he graduated, I thought, okay, we've arrived. Right. <laughs> you know, now we have this, you know, fabulous two CRNA income and, Bought a lovely house back in my hometown, and that was the fall of 98, and within 18 months, it all blew up. So wow. many people would wonder, that those first 10 or 12 years of your marriage, like you said, they seemed normal, right? Like there weren't flags that went up that made you wonder about him as a psychopath or sociopath or any of that. So do you think that something snapped in him for it to come out, or do you think it was there all along and he was like dormant? waiting for a specific time like how sleepers yeah like was he living a double life or was he actually fine and then all of a sudden he flew off the rails no our our relationship started on lies so i think it was dormant and i think um you know a psychopath uses who he needs to use for their wants um at that time and then when they're done with you they're done with you it's kind of impressive that like, when I think about it, I just think, like, it, it that was such a long time to lay dormant and, like, be working on this 
ultimate goal of using you or, you know, it's not like it was, all right, I'll just, you know, work on it for a year and then it'll happen. Like 10 years he had to, I mean, commit to this life he was living and be as normal as he can. I mean, I can't imagine being someone completely different than I am for that long to get to some ultimate, you know, goal where you just turn around and ask somebody. So Tanya, how did you, you said like there was kind of a point when everything blew up Mm -hmm. and how did you start to put the pieces back together? After it blew up? Yeah. (laughs) Well, first of all, let let me ask, how old were your girls when everything blew up? Okay. So Abby was uh, born the fall of 99. So the year after he graduated anesthesia school and, you know, he was working right away as a low comes up in Michigan. And he started leading a double life with somebody up there. Of course, I was unaware of that. He met her before we planned Abby and started a relationship before. Um, so he was not dormant per se. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he was, I believe he cheated our whole marriage. Right. I don't have 100% proof of that, but it seems very, very, very mm-hmm. likely. And so uh, that Christmas... I was waiting for him to return from Michigan and uh, I was going to have him, you know, watch the kids while I ran out to get his Christmas present. I had something in mind and he was four hours late coming home and I was kind of upset. One, because you said you were going to be home at one o'clock. It's now five o'clock. You knew a long time ago, driving from Michigan to Ohio, you weren't going to be on time. And I thought it was disrespectful and not courteous to, to give me a call. And I kind of called him out on that. And he, at that moment, I think he was, he loved that moment because he was waiting for a reason to just say that I was too controlling and that he wasn't happy. And he said, we're going to have a talk after the holidays. Well, after the holidays, then he said that he wasn't happy. And I said, well, you know, what's wrong? Or I can change. I'm sorry that I, you know, called you out on that. And, you know, we're going to counseling, right? Yeah. And so we did go to counseling and he never really engaged. You know, now that I look back at it, he didn't engage in it. He wanted out and he was just looking for a way out. And, you know, just to give a a quick answer as to how I put the pieces back together, that's very hard. There was a million pieces. And um, when things blew up, I didn't learn of everything all at one time on a silver platter. It was over a course of months where I learned the different things that I found out about him, you know, that um, basically how I found out is I called his mom, you know, his, his, it's important to know, and this is a red flag for everybody now that I, I never spoke or met his mother. I did meet his dad very briefly. John, you know, ran me in and out, no time for any, you know, serious conversation, but things were alerting me and I decided to call his mom and say, you know, what the heck is going on? I I knew that John had mentioned that he'd had a second social security number at one time. And there were red flags that he liked an era of music that was a little bit older than me. And, you know, some things that I just, I guess I knew inside that something wasn't right. So when I called her, she just laid it all out for me. You know, she said that he has been in trouble his whole life that um, that he uses people to get what he wants, that he had a, this a drug arrest, that he changed his name, altered his name from, I thought his name was Jonathan, his name was John, and I thought he was one year older than me, and he actually was um, six years older than me. So imagine finding that out after 12 right. years. Yeah. yeah. 
That's impressive for a mother to sell her child out like that. I mean, you imagine she must have been through the ringer with him by then. Yes, she was through the ringer by then. And with both of the sons, the other son um, had a drug problem as well. And she also told me in that uh, conversation that John was mailing narcotics to him. From work? Well, she didn't know. I mean, at that moment, yeah. nobody knows where, yeah. what, what it is. She didn't know what it was or, you know, how he was yeah. getting it or sending it. But that conversation with his mom is what led me to start snooping in my own house. Now, did you ever work together in the same workplace? Yes. And that created a problem. Did you identify a diversion at work ever? Did anybody ever notice anything on him? Was he just as professional at that as he was with everything else? Like, when did you notice a substance use problem with him? I, I never noticed a substance use problem with him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when he started diverting. Uh, we only worked together about six months. And then he took a job at another hospital at night where there would be minimal supervision. And um, I think that's where he was getting most of his 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 stash from. Mm-hmm. But at one point, I think from the Dirty John podcast, I remember you had reported him, right? Yes. To the board. I reported him, the family, his uh, sister called me in September and said that the brother had overdosed and died. Oh God. So that led you to wow. do the, the hard drive in my computer. <laughs> Somebody told me that any, uh, anything that you delete on your computer is stored in the hard drive. And so I had the hard drive of my computer opened and there were all the emails telling his brother how to use fentanyl. Be careful. Don't mix it with alcohol. I stayed up all night reading those emails and the love affair between him and this uh, physician in Michigan. Yeah, that was a long night. (laughs) So with that, so I guess... The, I'm so sorry. I know. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that was a rough night. I mean, I could see myself now that I had, I had a stack of, you know, is that when you started drinking? No. <laughs> okay. Let's not confuse anybody. I never started drinking, but I, <laughs> yeah, I would have getting through that. I would have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, at this point you're, you know, reading all this stuff and you have two girls asleep or at least your one was asleep at home. Right. I mean, so, uh, yeah, so uh, Emily would have been about four and a half at that time, I guess. And Abby's, you know, less than a year. And, you know, I always kind of credit Abby to kind of, you know, she kind of saved me, I think, during that time. Yeah. One, she was a really good baby. She slept for 12 hours a night. A oh, girl. Impressive. Which I really needed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had to get up every morning and go to that baby. You yeah. know, I didn't have the option to curl up in a ball. Mm-hmm. So, um, kept you going. Yeah. Got to keep going. Yeah. Got to go to work. Yeah. Got to take care of those two girls. Yeah. But yeah, so I did go to the police, which turned out to be, uh, that, that then became a threat on my life, uh, from him by reporting him. Do you think that he never attempted actually an attack on your life because you were the mother of his children? Do you think that saved you? Good question. I, I don't know. Um, he was not vested in his children for sure. And so if I didn't take care of them, he, you know, even though he threatened to, you know, hurt me, he wasn't, he was never selfless enough to care for, you know, two children by himself. So I, I guess, I don't know. We'll never know why he didn't, but I oh sure God. thought that he could or he would. Did you have to ever split time with him, like co-parent 50-50, or how did you manage that? Yeah, so after I reported him to the police, the DEA put him under uh, watch 
And so I wasn't allowed to tell John that I had reported him. They wanted me to keep all of that a secret um, while they did whatever they did, which may have turned out to be not very much. And so uh, he was uh, visiting with the kids sporadically um, as he was jumping from state to state and taking jobs that he could. And those were some very tough visits. So imagine you find out that you've been leading a double life. Your husband's not who he says he is. You find out he's been shipping narcotics. You find uh, a syringe in his suitcase after he goes on a trip. So you suspect that he's probably using two. And you can't deny him visitation with his children or you'll go to jail. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you do that? You pray a lot. How did you do that? <laughs> I, I, I didn't have a choice. You know, my attorney said until there's an order, uh, until we have, you know, enough proof, they have to go. Oh, God. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a great situation. And, you know, I'd like to say that my kids were probably, were not well cared for during those times. I can give you some examples of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I would take the girls out to the car. I usually had someone to supervise that in case there was an incident. And like one time I'm putting Abby into the back seat, strapping her into the car, and there's a milk bottle from two weeks ago in the mm -hmm. back seat. So what's your baby gonna do? They're gonna grab the bottle. Right. Yep. So I said, John, there's a rotten milk bottle back here. And I kind of tossed it up into the front seat with him and he picked it up and threw it in the back seat. He said, it's none of your business. I said, well, wow. she might pick it up and drink it. That's rotten milk, you know? And so I stealthily snuck that bottle out, you know, cause he's still in the driver's seat out of the car. And I don't know if I stepped it under my shirt or whatever, but I got that bottle out of the car. So things like that I had to deal with. My kids went from being upper middle class to white trash in the period of a week, you know? Wow. What did, so what tough. did you do while they were gone? <clears throat> How long were they gone at a time also? So it would vary. He frequently would, you know, be calling me saying that he needed to bring them back early or, you know, and you were probably like, thank God. Go up late. He was put, he put everything in front of his kids, even though he was, you know, taking me to court, trying to get, you know, shared custody. It was clear to me that other things were more important to him, meaning himself and his needs. Right. And so they, they usually were only gone maybe, 48 to 72 hours at the most. And I fretted because, you know, when you go from, you know, a solid five years of every other thought you have is about your children, their safety, taking care of them. What's the next step, packing this, doing their laundry, preparing them for school, you know, and all that too. All of a sudden I'm not a mom. <laughs> That's right. what it felt like for a whole weekend. I just didn't even know which wall to look at. Yeah. And some people would say, that would be nice if, you know, you just had like a vacation or some time to yourself. People want that. But in your situation, it was different. It wasn't a vacation because you were terrified the whole time they were gone. I was terrified the whole time. I had to do my best to um, try and just keep myself busy. And I just mm -hmm. watched the clock and, and prayed that they would come home okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Waiting for the police to do something, That's which took a long, long, long time. And they never really even ever arrested him for the things that I had reported. It really took him uh, other actions on his part that got him arrested in the end, not, you know, really what I had reported. He didn't really get in trouble for the brother for mailing narcotics. I don't think they cared that one drug addict brother is mailing another drug addict brother narcotics and he died. I think they just like, 
it was too, I don't know, it was just too big. It was too hard to prove that the drugs that John sent caused the death of the brother. And they also had to at least consider, like I alluded to in the beginning, that maybe I'm just a really pissed off wife who found out that her husband is cheating on her. And I had access to the same drugs at the same hospital for a period of time. Right. There was a process of determining where those drugs had come from, you know, with lot numbers and things like that. And so it was eventually proven that they came from a hospital in Kentucky. So that, you know, exonerated me. Wow. God. I mean, your livelihood was basically put in jeopardy, you know? I mean, you were questioned and... Right. Right. It was. But I mean, I was... I, I, I know that the local police believed me because I just couldn't have been more adamant. There was a period of time where, you know, I called him and I said, you guys have recovered narcotics from my house. Shouldn't someone be arrested? Right. I'm so confident that I did not put those drugs in that box in the closet that I'm, I'm telling you someone needs to be arrested. How frustrating. At what point did you feel validated? Like at what, when he went to jail or when the podcast came out or I mean, at what point were you like, I'm not crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not the crazy wife. Yeah. I never, I never felt crazy. You know, I really didn't. Him going to jail, I wouldn't say made me feel validated, but I was relieved because I knew that there was going to be 21 months where I wasn't looking over my shoulder. Um, I wasn't starting my car with the kids in it, in the garage with the door down. And if he was in the driveway, I was going to hit the gas. So I had, I felt relief when he went to jail. But I will say, you know, the podcast uh, did validate what I had gone through because this story is so long, so complex, so crazy that you really can't take someone who doesn't know any of it and like tell them <laughs> right, with any accuracy and continuity what happened. So the fact that it got kind of tied up in a nice little package with a bow. Courtesy of the LA Times. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. That, that was huge. You know, because some people, I think, questioned why I participated. You know, like, why do you want all your dirty laundry out there? And, you know. Well, that was one of my questions, not about the dirty laundry, but just how did you feel when you were approached by the LA Times? And how did you feel as a parent? Because it's not just you being put out there. It's your daughters being put out there too. And how did that make you feel? Yeah. So great question. And uh, my answer for that is that story was going to be told whether I participated or not. And True. so I felt like I held the most information and I, I came to trust uh, Chris Gofford that he wanted to do a thorough story the best he could and a long story and I thought no better way for the truth uh, to be told correctly than for, for me to participate. And I say, this is my children's story. Um, although it's difficult maybe for it to be blast all over the world, I think it's taught my children a lot about their father. They learned the story from somebody other than their mother, which I think is important. And I want my children to know that... Um, you know, this is your truth. It's, it's not great, um, but there's no shame. The shame is not mine. I didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. And I want to teach them that it's okay to stand in your truth. Do they remember anything? Yeah, so um, mostly Emily. Abby, a lot of her memories are just based on what her sister has told her. Um, but Emily uh, saw him up until the time she was about 10. 
before and after jail, he, you know, had some visits. After jail, he had supervised visits. And so um, they do remember, um, they do remember being with him, yeah. Are they positive memories when they were together? No, not so much. I mean, some of it probably, yes. But a lot of it was a lot of broken promises. He would promise them the world. Of course, uh, at Thanksgiving time, we're always kind of re- Shuckle and reminded of uh, a visit. You know, John was always dating someone. There was always another woman there when the kids went for their visits. Even though he barely saw them, he couldn't see them alone. He had to have another a woman. And so he told Emily that you're coming for Thanksgiving. There's going to be lots of people and there's going to be other kids. It's going to be so fun. So Emily is all about experiences and having fun. And so she was so excited to go. Of course, by then the girlfriend had broken up with him. There was no one for Thanksgiving and he took him to Kroger and they played pass the chicken to try and win a free turkey. So, oh my. <laughs> so that's one of our funny Dirty John stories. Yeah. Oh. That we remember every Thanksgiving. Yeah. When your girls look back now, I mean, do they, I mean, that's your father, right? So they have to feel a sort of way. Do they, how do they reflect on him now? I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that question, you know, because you have your own internal dialogue, you know. I got one daughter who's pretty vocal and one daughter that's a little bit more internal about things. I don't, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I think that I think I think that all of the publicity and everything has helped helped in their understanding, um, helped in that. I you know I will say when when he was uh, asking for visitation, for example, and he's coming out of prison, and I'm saying to the counselor, why are we why are we putting my children through this? He's been gone for two and a half years. We're all doing pretty good. Why do we have to open up this can of worms again? And what the counselor said to me was, or the psychologist said to me was, Tanya, it's better for your kids to know that their dad is a scumbag than to fantasize that they're missing out on a relationship with a really great guy and maybe thinking you're the person who's standing in the way of that. Mm -hmm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I know how this is going to go. I know he's going to come into their life and he's going to be gone, but we have to go through this journey for them to learn. That's really powerful, actually, that that like hit me too. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because kids just keep hoping and hoping and hoping, right? Even in, in your more typical divorce situation, the kids are, you know, supposedly always hoping that mom and dad will, you know, get back together and they'll have the life that was set out for them. Now, you talked about, you know, typical divorce situations. Do you think that this situation, as crazy as it is, do you think it's more common than we know? I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope not. Um, but, you know, um, I, 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 are you talking about someone marrying a sociopath? That- yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, people have affairs all the time, but do you think that people are living with a different person than they think more than we even know about or hear about? Are there support groups that you've attended? Like, have you met other women that have been through the same kind of thing? I guess is where I'm going through. No, other than Deborah, really. No, I'm not, not gone to any support group. No. I, I am hopeful that that has to be a pretty small number. Mm-hmm. Do you keep in touch with anyone like from the podcast, like Deborah or? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's good. 
Yeah. Um, Deborah's a really, really, really sweet lady. And, you know, you have to be kind of that kind of sweet, naive type of person that, right. you know, I, I always say it's hard for us to see the sociopath as a, as a normal human, but it's very easy for the sociopath to see that you're someone they can get over on. Are, are your girls all close? Have they met or talked or, I mean, their experiences had to have been somewhat similar, except they were viewing this kind of like from an outside view, like, look how crazy he is. Whereas your girls, you know, that's their dad. But at the end, yeah, at the end, though, it, I mean, your experiences were very similar. Yes. Yeah. So I always say Deborah and I are bookends on this story. I was mm -hmm. the first yeah. and she was the yeah. last and there's a whole, um, probably a whole bunch in between. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, Tara was very upset when she killed John thinking that they, you know, this guy has children and I've killed somebody and, and there may be somebody that loves this person. That was her first reaction. The, 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 uh, Bravo, uh, dirty John show, you know, alluded to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is accurate. The girls came to, uh, be in contact and meet because, uh, it was about a year afterwards, actually, after he was killed. Tara was seeing that social media was attacking her mom because there was a lot of victim blaming for Deborah. People thought she was stupid. How did you do this? Why didn't you see it? Everybody was telling you. And Abby happened to witness Tara defending her mom on social media. And Abby just liked Tara's comment. And that led to them to start communicating. And then uh, we found out that they were coming to pick up a dog in Augusta and so we decided to, to meet. And that was uh, like the Thanksgiving a year after John was killed. And that was, I think, uh, important for both sides. Yeah. So how, when did he uh, die? What year was he that? He was killed August uh, 20th of 16. So we just hit the three-year anniversary. Wow. So not even that long ago. That's crazy. Yeah. So he was killed in 16. And then I guess the podcast came out in 17 and then the Bravo show came out in 18. What is the relationship? Uh, what is the nature of your relationship with Deborah Newell and her family? Like your family's relationship with her family's relationship now. Do you keep in touch at all? Is this kind of something that like you guys had, you know, what we're able to share an experience over and then it's kind of, you've gone your separate ways. Is this, do you think you'll always keep in touch with them? I think at least through social media, we'll always keep in touch. You know, we live on different sides of the globe <laughs> almost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have a very different life than, than, than we've lived. Um, they have a lot more privilege, uh, hard work and privilege than, than we have here. So we kind of live in different, different worlds in that aspect. But if we were ever in the same place, I think it, it, it would be, we would just go right back to, to feeling comfortable and, um, you know, we always laugh that actually Deborah was my kid's stepmom for a period of time, even though they didn't meet her till after, <laughs> after the, uh, their dad was dead. And those girls really are their stepsisters by, yeah. any, you know, yeah. normal de definition. So I think they feel protective of my girls. Tara is, well, I, I, you know, Tara gets all the attention, but of course, Jacqueline really was the first one just to, to be right. on, on John's, uh, personality. So they're both uh, heroes in, in my book any day mm -hmm. of the week. This might be a tough question to hear or to answer, but, you know, we talked about being a sociopath and um, a psychopath from birth. Do you or your girls ever talk about like how mental health 
affects them or did they have fears of it manifesting in them or you know carrying on any of these traits that their dad had like how did how do you address that they both uh, talked about that especially the young younger one abigail you know especially during that time when the story first broke and and he was being referred to as the devil and evil and I actually even had to call Tara out on that a little bit and say, I just want you to consider that when you call John or say he's the devil, that that, that makes my kids, you know, Hurt. children yeah. of the devil. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so yeah. I asked that maybe she referred to him, you know, saying he's evil, that's fine, but he's probably not the devil. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they were concerned. Uh, I was concerned even. I can tell you a story about that. When Emily was in the third grade, the, the teacher kind of called me and said, you know, Emily has told uh, the whole class that, oh, I forget who it was, um, one of the Disney characters, I'll think of it in a minute, was her cousin. And that she'd been to her house and she has a 10-story house and Emily's telling like this fabulous lie at school, mm -hmm. Lizzie McGuire. She said, oh, yeah, yeah. Emily told oh, the whole class, yeah. Lizzie McGuire is her cousin. And so my new husband then at that time we went in and had a, a meeting with the teacher and of course we told her to deal with emily's dad and i was like oh my god she's going to be just like him but i you know i didn't realize because she's my first daughter that kids lie oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and it was okay emily's yeah. not a sociopath yeah and, oh, i would have had those fears too but i think they sure. had to at least question you know i'm half of him but you know luckily the kids i think they look like me i don't see John's uh, in them, and they've been raised, you know, mostly by me. So I think we're past that point of um, yeah. believing that any of that's going to be true. Yeah, I think the universe took care of that, making them look like yeah. you and act like you and everything. Yeah, I was always glad that God didn't give me a son that looked just like him because mm -hmm. I, when you're fearful of somebody, yeah, you would it would taint your relationship. Yeah, even a picture of him used to make me tremble and get sick. You know. Wow. So luckily, I had two beautiful girls that don't look anything like him. Wow. And you're ha you're remarried and happy. How long have you been married? I remarried. Uh, we'll be 16 years this. Oh December. wow! Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's a CRNA. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I didn't oh, know that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different. Different and though. He, Very. Different and not thing. a scumbag, right? <laughs> not a scumbag. Matter of fact, he's one of the most honest people you will ever meet. You know how yeah. everybody's capable of some white lies. Yeah. I can't even tell a white lie. Like, like if you want to make an excuse why you can't go to somebody's <laughs> house, you know, like everybody does that. He's like, well, just tell him you don't want to go. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I've swung from the least honest to the most honest. Yeah. Oh, how did that affect good. your? How did that affect you when you met your current husband? How did your previous relationship affect um, your outlook on other men, other CRNAs? Did it did it mess anything up? I mean, did you just smoothly transition into this marriage? You know, how was that for you? Yeah, so everybody asked me that, you know, how did you ever trust again? Yeah, so um, I will say that the experience did kind of change how I looked at the world because I thought the world was a pretty safe place and I was in a safe place, um, and that turned out to not be true. So it kind of changed my view of the world a little bit. But I, I, I didn't believe that there was any chance this could happen twice. <laughs> so <laughs> I did something. 
I didn't immediately have some mistrust towards men. Um, and a matter of fact, I, I like to tell people that I read a book by Dr. Phil called uh, Relationship Rescue uh, after all this happened. It wasn't really to rescue my relationship with John. That was not, didn't want to rescue that. But there was a part of the book that said in any relationship, you play a role in that relationship. So I had to do some self-discovery as to why I was the person that he could see and why I was so drawn to the attention that he provided. And I had to, you know, take a deep dive into my own personality and fix maybe some of those things. Maybe I didn't fix them perfectly, but um, otherwise I, I could end up with a, the exact same uh, scenario again, yeah. which you see a lot of women do. Yeah. You say, oh my God, she picked the guys just like the last one. Mm -hmm. yeah. So unless yeah. you do the work on yourself, even though I don't feel like I hold a lot of responsibility with this mess, <laughs> um, I think that's important in any, in any relationship, any breakup. Did you do all the work yourself or did you guys as a family kind of seek um, help or counseling or something after this? Or did you feel like you could take it on on your own? Well, I stayed with the counselor that John and I started as a marriage counselor with for a while. Um, and then I think it was she that directed me to a pediatric counselor because I said, I just don't even know how to do this. You know, I don't know how to get divorced. I don't know how uh, to, to tell the kids that their dad's in jail. I don't know what to say. And so it was very important to me to protect my children as much as I could so that they wouldn't be screwed up from all of this. So we went to counseling um, and uh, we were in and out as needed for about six years. So finally, my oldest daughter says, I don't have anything else to talk about. <laughs> yeah. He didn't want to go there and talk about it anymore. And he was so, gone then. So how, he was out of their lives since the oldest was 10. How did you talk to your daughters about relationships when they started to become teenagers and explore that and how did you like were you super protective of like needing to approve every boyfriend that came home or how did that go yeah so that's i imagine that's tough for any parent um but for me maybe it was a little extra tough um, i have a three-year-old so i'm not there yet <laughs> either <laughs> yeah so you know we've had conversations all along the way um, um I, you know, it wasn't like one sit down conversation uh, with some great advice. I just think that I tried to make sure my girls knew what it meant for um, a boy to love you and care about you and put your needs first, um, you know, rather than their own. There were conversations like that. And then, you know, I had my eye out. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, fortunately, my girls, uh, you know, overall picked, you know, pretty healthy relationships, I would say. They didn't all work out, um, as most don't uh, in those younger years. But, you know, Emily's engaged now, and I really like well, the guy that she's engaged to, Congrats. yes. They met in nursing school, and he's applying to anesthesia school. Oh, awesome. awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, this will be good for her. It'll show her that the positive and the good. Right. And then Abby's 20. She's a sophomore in college and she's had her boyfriend almost two years now as well. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, one you... thing, one piece of advice is you got to get to know their family because the family is going to be part yeah. of it. Yes. And like you said, you didn't meet John's family. Right. So that totally, I would never, I wouldn't even think, 
you know, to call his mom, I guess, but you had to. Yeah. Well, I had nothing to lose at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What advice do you have, um, not so much for your girls, but like for other women or men going through this, like in the thick of a messy divorce affair, you know, finding out the person is living a double life. You said you picked up over a million pieces at least. So what, what would you tell someone else looking back on it now being as experienced as you are? Well, um, that's a great thing to be experienced that, right? Um, <laughs> Um, I would say that I was nervous to talk to other people about it uh, just for fear of judgment or uh, failure. I hadn't failed at many things in my life. I'd always been successful and, and always had my eye on the ball. And uh, so um, I would say that don't be afraid to share with your family um, because when you think you're going to find judgment, you're probably going to find open arms um, as I did. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of information out there. I would say do a lot of reading. It's very dangerous to leave an abusive relationship. Uh, that's, that's when people are killed, uh, as during that uh, time when the woman leaves. And it is said that women will take six or seven times coming and going before they leave for the final time. Um, and we all should not have judgment on those women um, because it is a dangerous time. So, um, you know, every situation is so convoluted. It's, it's hard to give advice, but, you know, just to stay safe, read as much as you can and um, pull in your support system. I had a lot of support through this at work and I only had the support because I opened up, you know, um, so you're going to need I, that support. I really admire your strength through this yes. and, and it, it takes a lot of strength to be able to open up through this and, go to other people for support. So I just, I admire you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's common in our profession that we are all used to succeeding and we're all so afraid of failure that I think that when you were talking, I was thinking to myself, if that happened to me, my biggest fear would be I failed and what are people going to think of me? Like it's this whole facade. It was all a lie. They're going to think I'm an idiot, that I'm, sh you know, I would be ashamed and all these things. So I, I, I'm thankful that you shared that because if God forbid this ever does happen or, you know, something occurs in my life, I'll, I'll hopefully remember that, you know, don't be ashamed. You know, it's not like you did something knowingly it's, it's life. Right. Right. Yeah. So and Tanya, I love having you in the CRNA mom group. You have the best advice <laughs> ever. I swear on everything. You guys go back and read her advice. It's always so good. So well I'm stated. I wonder well, how I sometimes feel kind of like the grandma of the group. I don't oh, know. Oh, I love no, it. It's okay. perfect. We appreciate it. You know, because some of us are in there like these are my first two and they're super young. So I feel like I'm just like failing forward every day and flailing around through life. Like I have no direction. I have no idea what I'm doing. If I'm doing it right, I just kind of wing it and see what happens. So it always helps to have somebody like you, you know, cheering us on and guiding us or, you know, just lending a helping hand from afar. Yeah. What is the piece of advice that you feel you end up giving the most in the group? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> She's just very encouraging, and yeah. she she Get just off puts of things in in really good in good words, and I don't know. It's just. I mean, I'm just thinking we have so many people in the group who ask similar questions, and so um, like what do you see? So you're an experienced CRNA mom. Mm -hmm. And what do you see 
us newer CRNA moms struggle with the most? Like what would you tell just blanket all of us young people floundering right now? Well, I would say that if you're worried about how you're parenting, you're probably going to be a good parent because you're parenting consciously. You're thinking about it. You know, I think a lot of us and my generation uh, were raised, uh, you know, that you, you got married, you had kids, the kids were quiet and, and well-kept. And um, I, I don't think people thought a lot about, um, you know, the process of parenting and how to raise good people. <laughs> Because in the end, isn't that what you want? You want to raise good right. people. Yes, yes. Um, and and um, so I think if you're if you're thinking about it and you're fretting about it, you're probably going to be a you're probably doing a good job. One of the things that you know I, I I worry about is that with social media, everybody's putting out their best one second photo, mm-hmm. and that's not really uh, captivating what your day looks like. Mm-hmm. It's a highlight reel. It, it's it's <laughs> yep. the highlight reel. And so I want to make it cool to share the shit. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's real life and Mm -hmm. that's where we really can support each other. And that's what I love about that Facebook page is that people can say whatever and they're hit with a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important. It's not that I don't put up pretty pictures of my family either. Well, yeah, but you got to be real. You got to, because I think it's, it's unfair to other moms who are struggling to give them the perception that you have it all together and it's so easy and it makes them feel like they're doing something wrong and we need to just all be honest. So if you've got a lot of help, just be honest that you have a lot of help. You're not just, you know, amazing and doing it all yourself. I tell people all the time how much help I have because people are like, oh, you keep it together. I'm like, I don't keep anything together. It's the village behind me keeping things together. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm just there. And it's just unfair to make other women and men feel as inferior parents because they think I have to do this and I have to do that all by myself and I have to make it look good when that's not reality. Nobody's doing that, but people make it look like they are. And it that's just irresponsible and it's not courteous. Yeah. You're unknowingly and inadvertently hurting other women by mm-hmm. posting your unperfect mm-hmm. life in a perfect way. So it's almost, you know, there should be a disclaimer by every perfect photo that my kid took 12 shots to get this. Yeah. Yeah. And I threatened my kids the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Include the before and after on that single one of those. Bribed with all kinds of candy and (laughs) yes. So I, I find it interesting. I wonder how many people in our CRNA mom group actually know, like when you're commenting that it's you, like who you are, or maybe they don't know because maybe they never listen to the podcast. Do you get people frequently um, coming up to you or messaging you when they find out who you are or at work even, you know, when um, they profile John and you, how did people at work respond? Um, you know, what has your journey been like so far? And we know you talk a lot at different places. So what do you normally talk about? How has it been for you? This like, you know, newfound <laughs> okay, fame. It's it's all the same question. How, what's your newfound fame like? Tell us about fame. <laughs> okay. So I'm your not celebrity. Really- I, I'm I am not a celebrity. I'm right. not very famous in my normal everyday life. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, well, I had moved from Ohio to Atlanta, so you know I'd let little bits and pieces out over the years at my job, um, but nobody knew the the gravity of this story. So when it came out, they were like, you know, wow, we didn't really we weren't really paying attention when you said some of those things. <sighs> mm-hmm. So. 
So, well, and they, you know, sometimes they call me Hollywood at work, <laughs> especially, especially one girl, but we all think that's funny. No one notices me or recognizes me on the street. There's occasional funny moment at work. Uh, one day we had a male CRNA and a patient coming off propofol said, oh, that guy looks like Dirty John. And of course, so the the recovery of nurses like, well, you're not going to believe this, but his ex-wife works here. So that does happen yeah. um, where things like that come up at work. And that's kind of, you know, fun and people want to take their picture with me. And I find that very humorous, you know, mm-hmm. but I'll oblige that. Now, and the doing the speaking, of course, you know, I am a somewhat mini celebrity at the conferences. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's entertaining to me, but you know, my, so did you my, have like a selfie line when you get there? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So no, but my we'll mess- start one at the next place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my message at the conferences basically is I, I kind of, um, I chronicle my life with dirty John in the things that a lot of people haven't heard the, the real backstory of what it was like to be a CRNA married to this guy and um, you know, how all that went. And then I used the last part of my lecture to just bring awareness to, to drug diversion and, and substance use disorder and, and how to get help and to, you know, try and take the shame off of, of, of diversion. Um, so Could that's what my, my lecture is about. And it has evolved. I've given it, I think, seven times now. And I feel like it keeps getting better and better as I, um, you know, have different audiences and, and people share their stories at the end. Everyone's got a story of either um, drug abuse in your family, uh, themselves, a coworker. Everybody knows somebody. And this story, I think the reason that it's gotten such press and, and interest and popularity is because you can find yourself somewhere. Mm-hmm. in this story. You don't have to be a CRNA to find yourself. Yeah. Now, what would you, if you had to give, you know, your top um, tips or things to look out for, what you tell people at conferences in terms of diversion, noticing it on somebody else or what you say to them when they seek help? Because we always talk about like always providing our listeners with resources. So if you could just give us something like that. So your best resource is through the AANA. They have, you just visit their page. There's a um, peer assistance uh, advisors. Um, You call them, even if you have a question, you saw something, you're not sure, you don't want to make an accusation towards someone. They're a non-reporting body, so your call will be confidential, and they will not report that person, so you don't have to fear that, because we do have a fear of, you know, Mm -hmm. what if I'm wrong? (laughs) Um, I don't want to get somebody in trouble. We all know how hard it was to get our license and we don't want to be the one, you know, that, you know, gets someone's license taken away. We want people to be treated fairly. So I didn't know that the AANA had resources like that, uh, that many years ago. And so I didn't call them and they've even asked me, the people on the peer assistance advisory board wanted to know, why did you go to the police instead of, you know, calling, calling the AANA. Well, my story, I think, is a little bit different because it involved, you know, a lot of issues other than just diversion in the workplace. So um, I think I did the right thing, but I could have used them as a resource if I had known. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I didn't so, know that either. Yeah. So that's, that's the best piece of advice, I think, is to use your state peer uh, assistance uh, advisor or call the AANA and speak to someone there. They, I think they answer the phone 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And their phone number is on the AANA website. 
And also when you get your AANA card, which I just got mine recently, it also comes with a card with the, that phone number right there. That's helpful. Oh. I just got mine too. It's sitting on my desk. Okay. Is there anything that you teach people to look out for? Are there any signs? Because I sometimes think to myself, like, would I even notice if a coworker, I mean, I had a coworker who had to go for treatment and I never picked up on it. Other people did. I caught my boss stealing narcotics. Oh my. Wow. (laughs) I was on orientation in the ICU. But I didn't know what to do either. I told the charge nurse who said I could go confront him or just let it go. And I let it go because I was on orientation. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I had no idea what to do. I totally did it wrong because I didn't do anything. I've caught two people also, and I think I did it wrong. I feel like I can – I have – I don't know. I might be wrong, but I had a sense about it. I am so oblivious. I I couldn't catch it if it was happening right in front of my eyes. I'm probably – the only the reason best. I saw it is because it did happen right in front of my eyes. And I was like, uh, did I just see that? And I was told no. And then I was like, oh, okay. But I think the <laughs> pharmacist actually overheard me ask the charge nurse. Mm. And they'll then, take care of it. Yeah. He was <laughs> yeah, they will. audited and walked out like less than a month later. Yeah. So um, there's a full list of... Um, of things to look for on the AANA website. Oh, good. Okay, good to know. Uh, yeah, I didn't know so that. it's going to be somebody who gives lots of breaks, takes a lot of bathroom breaks, their personality changes from the time you relieve them to the time they come back from the bathroom. Um, uh, they're using more narcotics than other people. Their, their charts don't uh, match up uh, to when they signed out drugs. Their patients are coming in hot to the recovery room. Um, there's a multitude of signs um, of all of that um, on the website. So I would, um, you know, refer you to go to the to website to get a full list. Okay. It's we'll important, to though, to report it. Notes. If you see something, yeah. you need to say something because in the end, anyone who's diverting, I, I think that, I think that, um, excuse me for stumbling, I think the, um, the statistic is that only 5% will self-report. So 95% have to be reported by somebody else. Yeah. And you're saving a life. You're saving a life. And the diverter, you know, most of the time, even though it's damn uncomfortable to, to see it, to report it, to call them out, they want the behavior to end. They Mm -hmm. just don't know how to do it themselves alone. I think um, today my goal and our goal was to focus on you. Because, you know, Dirty John got a lot of press and John and everything, John, John, John. But we were excited to talk to you. Um, You know, that was some of the story. But I hope you felt like you got a platform to talk about you and your life and your experiences and not being in the shadow of John and his experiences. So I just want to know, can you just tell our listeners quickly, like, who are you? Where do you come from? Where'd you grow up? You know, just tell us who you are. Cause I think it's always fun for us to find out we all end in the same place as a CRNA, but we all come from such different beginnings. And I would love to hear who you are, you know, before this experience happened to you. And, um, cause it doesn't Did you define always you. want to be a CRNA, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. I'm the oldest child. I have one other sister. My parents are still married. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I grew up Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic grade school and 
I was the one who always raised my hand to do the readings at church. And I say that mm -hmm. was good practice for me standing up now in front of everybody because I'm not really a public speaker. Yeah. But that was good training for me. Um, I went, I wanted to be a nurse because I watched MASH. Oh, <laughs> <As a> kid. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. yeah. And um, Hot Lips Houlihan worked in the OR and I just thought that was the <laughs> coolest job. And that's what they call you now? No. no. Hot lips Hollywood. No, no. I barely have any lips, as you can see. So that would never be my nickname. So I sought out to, to be an OR nurse. And uh, during one of my nursing classes, we were supposed to go to this book and, and research one of the very many ways you can take nursing. And I opened the page to nurse anesthesia. I'd never heard of it. So I wrote my paper on nurse anesthesia. And I said, that sounds cool. It's still in the operating room, has a lot of responsibility. I'm going to do that. And I just kept telling myself that. And there was a tiny little voice that said, Tanya, are you telling the truth? Are you really going to do that? But after I told everybody I was going to do it, I kind of had to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I became a nurse anesthetist and I, I graduated at 25 as a CRNA. Awesome. What's so, your favorite part about being a CRNA? I, I think my, I was actually told by uh, one of my nursing uh, professors that I didn't have the right personality to be a CRNA. And, and that made you go day, for it more. <laughs> to this day, well, I don't even know what she meant. You know, I've always been outgoing and talkative, and I think she thought that my personal skills would be wasted as a CRNA because your patients are asleep, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that I think it's even more important to have good personal skills because you only have five minutes to gain that person's mm -hmm. trust. And that's I think so that still is my favorite part of being a CRNA. And a lot of times, uh, even on a daily basis, the hair on my neck will stand up when I see somebody based on what I've said to them. You can tell in someone's demeanor mm -hmm. that they feel comfortable and that you, they, um, you've gained their trust and that you've developed that relationship in that five minutes. That's what means the most to me. Mm -hmm. Not any skill I have, not any uh, epidural or spinal. All those things have been you know, wonderful and, 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 and joyful to learn, but it's really that five, 10 minutes you have before you put them to sleep that I enjoy. Totally. I love it. We, were, um, we probably need to wrap up um, but we all had talked about some questions that we want to ask all of our interviewees, like just some fun stuff that's completely unrelated to anesthesia and, you know, Dirty John and everything. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so my question to you is, what is your favorite um, mom hack? Like a great tip you can give someone. See, that's like a easier. term that I don't even understand. To be <laughs> <laughs> like what makes life easier? I mean, um, can someone give an example? Um, like syncing Google calendars so that you never lose track of the schedule. Or getting some people put their kids to sleep in their outfits that they're going to wear to daycare the next day, like to make life easier in the morning to get up and get out the door. <laughs> I think Tanya had enough going on that she didn't even have the opportunity to like do hacks. She was just like getting. You probably it. did them and just didn't know it yeah. because yeah. you were a single mom trying to get two girls ready yeah. for the. Your day. whole life I'm, is a life hack. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My favorite thing now, as a mom of older girls, is uh, Life Three Hundred and Sixty and tracking my children on. Oh, that. that's yeah. a great life hack because yeah. that makes me. Uh, you know, I, I thought about that earlier. You guys are in the throes of all the hard part of the little kids. And I will tell you that it's so much harder yeah. <laughs> when they're older and they're teenagers and there's dating and there's cars <laughs> and there's dangers and there's, and there's alcohol and there's all of that. So 
I guess that's my favorite thing is that when I, I can sleep soundly, when I know my children, even if they're at college, are home in bed. Yes. Yeah, that's nice. a good one. Okay. <laughs> one of our, so good job. One of okay. our other <laughs> questions was, what are you reading or watching now? Like, is there something you're binging? Like I'm binging The Crown right now, which I happen to love on Netflix. Yeah, I do love that show. I'll be honest that, you know, Dirty John was released to Netflix this week and I started to watch that. Is that the same one as Bravo's? It is the same one. So um, it is the Bravo show. It was released to Netflix International and Mm -hmm. um, that will answer a question uh, you asked me earlier is I receive inbox from women all over the world, Iraq, Afghanistan, Fiji that have inboxed me just to maybe say that they had been through something or thank me for sharing my story. Uh, I think that's a question you asked before. Very cool. So so, yeah, I started the Dirty John thing and I actually am seeing things that I didn't either didn't register or that I didn't notice before. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like you were portrayed on that? Like it'd be hard to watch somebody else. Like I feel like that'd be hard to watch. Uh, well, I played kind of such a small role. I liked the girl that played me. Um, I think they, you know, they changed my story quite a bit. Right. Um, uh, okay. A lot of the things didn't happen in the way that they did. And of course, I would have preferred it to be uh, all true and accurate. It didn't really bother me. I knew that that probably was going to happen. Um, I think they got the gist of it right. I think they got my heart right. I think they got my determination right. I think they got that I wanted to do the right thing. So I think, I think they've got the emotions right. So as we're wrapping up now, and you said a lot of people have been inboxing you, how can our listeners, do you, can they follow you somewhere? Do you have a website? How can they get in touch with you? How can they follow you and stay with your story? I, I'm, I'm not out there in that way. Um, I, I'm just a regular person on Facebook like everybody else. I have an Instagram. I almost never post anything there. <laughs> I'm not really looking to get any notoriety or, 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 or anything uh, from this, but you're going to find me on your, your mom page and you can Yay. friend me. I, I friend almost any CRNA that friends me on Facebook, of course. Um, and then you can, you, you could follow me or see my family. I do post when I speak at conferences and things like that. That's about it. I love it. I love your posts. And thank you for being such a big part of our group and this podcast. This was this great. Was awesome. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I enjoyed it very much. I appreciate uh, you wanted to talk to me. Yeah, we appreciate uh, your time. Well, you're very, very welcome. My pleasure. Yay. Thank you, Tanya. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We are really excited to have you here with us, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast with Tanya and her story. And please, 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 uh, if you can, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us five stars. We would love you forever. And you can uh, connect with us on Facebook at Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups or on Instagram at Hey Smart Mamas. And we're on Twitter, too, at Hey Smart Mamas, but I haven't quite figured out to use Twitter yet. So. <laughs> and don't forget to, to be share. determined. Yeah, don't forget oh, yeah. to share with your other mom friends and anybody yeah. who you think would benefit from this. We love new followers. And um, please give us your recommendations on topics and your feedback on the episode, kind of our interview style, what you love or hate. We are open to all of the feedback. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.